When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One week from tonight, we get a national championship game that looks familiar to SEC fans. Alabama taking on Georgia. It's College Football Live. He's David Pollock. He's Rod Gilmore. I'm Jason Fitz, and we'll get into this rematch. But it all starts from the perspective today of Alabama. Remember, Alabama taking on Cincinnati. We had all eyes on this match. What was it going to look like? And this was all about Brian Robinson going off. The question was, how was Cincinnati's corners going to handle Alabama's passing game? Well, they didn't need to because Robinson, 26 carries, 204 yards, 7.8 yards per carry. In the meantime, speaking Speaking of the passing game, Bryce Young still had three touchdowns in the air. An efficient 17 to 28, 181, three in the air, and Alabama rolls over Cincinnati to find their way into the national championship. Familiar territory. Remember, this is their ninth appearance in an Addy, nearly twice as many as any other team in the BCS CFP era, dating all the way back to 1998. So, as we look at this Alabama team, the question is how good, Rod Gilmore, is this Alabama team? Well, Fitz, I mean, they're clearly good enough to win the national championship. But I think what happens is that we have this tendency to compare them to the other great Alabama teams that have won a championship. And we don't see this team as being on the same level. It's an unfair comparison, but it's the reality. We're used to Alabama dominating throughout the regular season. This year, they struggled in four games. You know, they lost to A&M, but they could easily have lost to Florida, to Arkansas, and to Auburn. So that gives us the perception or the impression that this isn't as dominant a team as you normally see. But I'll tell you this, they're certainly good enough to win the national championship. They've played Georgia before. They played, they, they really handled them. So, DP, I, I, I'm just saying, maybe not a historically great Alabama team, but certainly good enough to win the national championship. Yeah, and uh, you say all that, and they still got the best player in the game in Will Anderson. They still got the best quarterback in the game, and the Heisman Trophy winner with Bryce Young. So I, we, we have. We, we measure Alabama all the time and how great they've been. But this is one of Nick Saban's best coaching jobs. I mean, it's unbelievable. The guys, have, the injuries have been all over the place. And they've continued to plug and play, continue to play great football. Obviously, the, the game was Cincinnati. It was close. It wasn't, it wasn't a beat down by any stretch. But they took advantage of, of what Cincinnati didn't. If Cincinnati wants to run a three-man front, they, they want to kind of give you the run more than the pass. And Alabama said, we'll take it. So, a great season. They lost. They kind of got them their footing again. But you're right. We've seen them struggle. But we also saw them destroy Georgia in the SEC championship game, which was at yeah. that time the best team in the country. So, Pollock, nobody's crying for the credit that Alabama gets, but is it possible we view them through an impossible measuring stick because of their past greatness? They've been in, what, six of the last eight national championships? So, I mean, my gosh, like, this is a day that ends in Y, homie. This is, this is what they do. This is who they are. I get <laughs> sick of the adjectives that I can throw out there. Nick Saban is the best to ever do it, and the gap between him and everybody else just continues to expand. It's ridiculous. His ability to get his team, his ability to recruit talent, 
to make them disciplined, to make them tough, and to find a way to buy into the team year after year after year. It's just stupid, Rod. I don't, I don't have anything else to say that's new. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is. It is crazy, you know, and we have this impossible standard for them because, look, we're used to seeing them being physically dominant and in particular in the rushing attack. And that was down for them this year, whether it's because of injury or youth or whatnot. But they weren't as dominant in the rushing attack as we've seen them in the past. And so that that created this perception that this is not an all time great Alabama team, but they win a national championship with one loss and having defeated Georgia twice. It'll be considered one of the great coaching uh, jobs for Nick Saban. Well, let's give Cincinnati a little bit of love in this process. Yes, they lost the game, but it was a heck of a year for the Bearcats. They put everyone on notice back in October when it went into South Bend, beat a top-10 Notre Dame team. They finished the year with a record program, program record, 13 wins, were the first group of five team ever to reach the college football playoff. There was high expectations for them coming into this game. So, Pollock, did they make a statement for the group of five being competitive in this playoff game? They absolutely competed. I, I don't want to hear the it was a beatdown. If you're watching all these college football semifinals, they very rarely deliver. They usually are very, very uncompetitive. Cincinnati was in this ballgame. They were absolutely in the ballgame. Alabama controlled it. Uh, and if you want to go yards, yeah, they dominated the game. But, you know, Cincinnati stuck around. Uh, Desmond Ritter didn't play good enough. Their stars on their team didn't play good enough and didn't impact the game enough. And they weren't good enough to beat Alabama. And physically, they couldn't match up, just like Michigan couldn't match up. But I don't think Cincinnati needs, and everybody needs to point to Cincinnati and go, oh, man, they didn't belong. You see, they didn't belong because we can go to the Notre Dame game a year ago against um, against Alabama. We can go to the uh, the championship with multiple games with LSU. And LSU played Oklahoma and scored 6,000 against them en route to a championship. So I don't want to hear the narrative that they didn't belong. They played a pretty good game. They just weren't good enough. Yeah, you know, David, um, I think Cincinnati had a great year. I think they belonged in the playoff. I don't think there was a general overriding statement made by their appearance against Alabama. I, I, I don't think anything came out of it. You know, um, they competed, as you said, they were in it until about halftime. But look, you know, I don't think there's a statement that the group of five belongs or doesn't belong. Look, it, it took an extraordinary situation for Cincinnati to get into the playoff. We had three uh, power five conference champs that had two losses. And two losses is the third rail when it comes to the playoff committee. And that opened the door and Cincinnati got in there. But I, I don't think there's a, a broad statement that, oh, well, we've got to let G5 in now or we've got to keep them out. I don't think this game changed any of that. I think it was great for Cincinnati to be a part of it. But I, I don't think there's going to be uh, – we're not going to open the floodgates for a group of five teams to get in. And it's going to take a tremendous, tremendous season and some luck to have it happen again. So, Rod, let me push back a little bit and ask you this. If Cincinnati had been blown out, would we not be saying, some would be saying, that it's, it's proof positive that Group of Five doesn't belong? So shouldn't we give them credit if we were going to discredit them in a blowout? Nobody wants credit for losing and not having a chance to win it, <laughs> you know. But listen, uh, as, as David pointed out, man, we see these semifinals, and Cincinnati is not the first team that, you know, it was done at halftime. You know, he mentioned Notre Dame. He mentioned Michigan. I mean, we, we've seen this over and over. So in my view, yeah, did they carry the flag for the group of five? Was it a, what, great that they didn't get simply demolished? Sure, but, but that's a pretty low bar. 
Um, I, I think unless they were in the game in the fourth quarter, you're, you were going to have people b- pounding the table saying we need to have group of five in the playoff every year. No, they're, they're, listen, I don't think there's any winning with this with this topic, but it was a strange year um, and it took Clemson being historically bad. Um, you know, Ohio State playing Oregon out of conference. Otherwise, they're probably right in the mix to to be in it. So I think a lot of factors had to go the G5's way and Cincinnati's way. And, and how, how Rod, how perfect, too, when you're talking about a scenario of Cincinnati and the team that's behind them, they just happened to play with Notre Dame. Like, they literally played right. Notre Dame, one of the teams they were fighting for to get in, and they beat them. So it took extreme circumstances. If we do not expand yep. the playoffs and we still sit at four, it's still going to take – a lot of carnage like Rod talked about with two lost champions and head to heads and a lot of things to go right. But I thought Cincinnati proved they were a good team the way they played all year long. They were not just blown away in this game. It was a competitive football game. So please let's not start talking about Cincinnati stinks. They shouldn't be there. Well, Pollock, you've done my job Agreed. perfectly for me, as always, as that segues to what we'll get to next. We talk about a chaotic year in college football. Well, the, the New Year's Six Bowl games proved that chaos is just the beginning. We had a wild weekend. Offenses came out smelling like all sorts of roses in Pasadena. So we'll recap the best of the New Year's Six. We'll get you caught up on everything you might have missed there. Oh, oh, we're going to recap the rematch, actually, next. That's my fault. We're going to talk a little bit Alabama, Georgia. Why will it be different? We'll tell you. Come on, Fitz, come on. Georgia all over Michigan, 34 to 11. That gives us the final match between Georgia and Alabama. So, Pollock, what did Georgia do here to do this to Michigan? Um... Rod knows um, college football people that follow the game. There's, they just showed you there's kind of levels to this. And Alabama and Georgia are kind of different level. And, and you look at them and listen, you can call it whatever you want. You can get upset if you want. You go on the field and you watch these teams warm up. And there's a big difference. The, the size, the length, the physicality, the trenches is just a big deal. And, and it's different. And everyone there who's on the field, you, you can see it and you could, you could feel it. Um, but just the physicality and, and the, uh, the level of, of physical play in the trenches, I think, is just different. Listen, they played, they played a great game. They were ready for Michigan. They were well coached, and we can give them the credit. But the, the players on the field obviously show that there's a big gap between the two teams, Rob. Yeah, you know, uh, David, the SEC is still the premier line of scrimmage league. There, there's no question about it. And we see it time and time again when this shows up. You know, to me, you could see it in the first quarter. There was a series that really got my attention. You know, Michigan had a third and four at the Georgia 41-yard line, and they threw an incomplete pass. They came right back on fourth down, four-down territory, and also threw an incomplete pass. So that told me they had no confidence in their ability to run the ball against the Georgia front. Otherwise, you take two cracks at running the ball to pick up that first down, and it was a signal to me that – the whipping up front by that defensive line, Michigan and their coaches knew it, and they lost confidence right off the bat. The other thing that surprised me, yeah. though, was that Michigan completely lost sight of Brock Bowers in the first quarter. He's their best receiver. He was completely alone a couple times. And when you have that happen, you're not winning at the line of scrimmage, and you're not getting the top receiver. 
you know, David, I don't know how you win when that when those are the problems. Yeah, Rod, that was their first drive. It was actually a pretty decent drive by Michigan when they missed that fourth and four. Hey, Rod, what 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 is your allegiance, by the way? Just to be clear for everybody out there, I just I want to hear about the SEC bias. Where, where are you? Where are you located, Rod? <laughs> I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in California, Pac-12 country. <laughs> okay, so just just to be clear, you can you can take it now, Fitz. I was just it's, the SEC yeah. bias that Rod's showing right now. I just wanted to be clear that. It comes from the West Coast. Yeah, yeah well, I, I'm still going to argue with you guys on this a little bit, though, because, Pollock, you said in the beginning, the guys that watch know. Well, I mean, I hosted the pregame show before this on the digital platforms. We asked all the analysts. Nobody seemed to be predicting a massive blowout. Marty Smith, who covers this incredibly well, said this is a galvanized Michigan team. A Joe Moore award-winning offensive line got pushed around. Like, you say the guys that knew, but did we overestimate the greatness of Michigan's offensive line? Because they didn't look good in this. I you know, I think there's 17, one thing that should be pointed I, I, out. Go ahead, go, go ahead, Pollock. I'll make the decision. Just saying, go ahead. Just, that Fitz, Michigan Fitz, Fitz, talk, Fitz, Fitz talked about it while he wasn't watching, apparently, all the pregame shows. Almost all of us picked Georgia. I picked 31-17, Fitz. So, I, I mean... I get what you're saying. Listen, you don't go into a game, Fitz, and you go, listen, this is going to be a blowout. But we knew this was a bad matchup for Michigan. Michigan tries to play a style of football where they bully you, and they're dang good at it. And they bullied Ohio State, and they bullied all the teams they played. Do you, Alabama didn't try to bully Georgia for a reason. You're not going to bully these guys. So I think that we yeah. knew that it was a bad matchup. It was a bad style. That doesn't mean that Michigan isn't good and Michigan couldn't play them closer in other games, but Georgia's clearly yeah. a more physical, athletic version of what Michigan is, and, and it's not close. You, we're going to go to the draft, and we're going to do this again, and we're going to see you know, 10 guys drafted from Georgia, and you're going to have you know, three or four guys drafted from Michigan. It's, it's, it's a talent difference. Yeah, you know, uh, David, it's also apparent, really, at the defensive line. The Michigan offensive line is really good. They had a great season, but they had not faced a front like this, which was big, athletic, and quick, and could really, you know, take control. So to me, that was a huge difference up front. And if folks weren't paying attention to it before the game, they sure, certainly figured it out after the first couple of drives. Well, let's give a little perspective on how bad this blowout was for Michigan as we move forward to the Michigan side of this. Their 23-point loss to Georgia tied for its second-largest loss as an AP Top 5 team. The Wolverines trail by as many as 31 points to the Dogs after entering the game as the only FBS team to never trail by double digits this season. But I, I do want to find like a ray of hope, Rod. If you're looking towards the future for Michigan, can you look at it and say, hey, this stings, but there are good things ahead for the program? Oh, yeah. I, I think, uh, as Jim Harbaugh said, this is a starting point. At least now they know right up front where the issues are if they want to be at that level with Georgia and Alabama. Look, you know, you have two premier pass rushers in Michigan. You know, and, and uh, David Ojaba and Aiden uh, Hutchinson. And uh, the, the Georgia offensive line pitched a shutout against them. Great job up front when you think about Jamari Salyer and uh, Warren McClendon. They pitched that shutout. And look, they need more help. They've got a couple of guys like that that can make plays, but they need more help. And they got to go out and recruit that and have that depth in order to get at that level. So I think there's optimism for Michigan. You've got a great quarterback coming back. They've, got, they've improved their speed across the board. And then 
you know, uh, if you get the big-time receiver to help you out and you can be a little bit more explosive on offense, I think they have a real shot. This is a cliche reminder to everybody that throughout the course of the season, there were clearly two teams that looked better than all of the rest of college football, and they've proven themselves, to Rod's point, to be better. I don't want to take anything away from Michigan. Instead, use this opportunity to credit a Georgia team that looks very good. So, being that, that being said, we will get into the rematch and what it will mean, how it will look different, because Georgia and Alabama are going to face each other again. And we've got, we've got to get into the New Year's Six. I told you earlier we were going to do it. Now we will. The offenses came out smelling like roses in Pasadena. See what I did there? We will get you a recap of all of the New Year's Six action coming up on College Football Live. I've never in the history of college football seen a more dramatic season. Before you make your decision... There's something you gotta know. There's been talk that one of them might be here for the wrong reasons. You doing okay? Listen, I know this is hard. You just gotta follow your heart. Stay tuned for the dramatic college football finale. I hear you. Let's recap Saturday's New Year's Six Bowls, Ohio State shattered the record books. It defeated Utah in the Rose Bowl. Jackson Smith and Jigba scored three touchdowns to go with 15 catches and 347 yards, the most receiving yards in any bowl game all time. Incredible effort for him. Incredible game. One for the ages. Ohio State wins that one in the Fiesta Bowl. Oklahoma State pulled off a program record 21-point comeback to beat Notre Dame. I'm not sure if Mike Gola Jr. is still okay. The Irish are now 0-8 in BCS in New Year's six games, the most losses without a win by any team. And Baylor beat Ole Miss in the Sugar Bowl to give their Bears the first ever 12-win season. Unfortunately, Ole Miss quarterback Matt Corral left the game late in the first quarter due to a lower leg injury. We don't have any update on that. But we did watch a New Year's six group of games that were incredible. So, Rod Gilmore, it leads to the question, should these games be playoff games? Should we expand to include them? Man, you know, uh, those were some really exciting games, and, and they would be fun. But listen, if we're talking about expansion, you know, expansion is a complicated issue. I mean, if we expand to 8 or 12, these New Year's Day games would be perfect to use in that, in, that, uh, in that playoff. But, you know, expansion encompasses a lot more than that. I mean, you've got to figure out how can you make it more palatable for players, more incentives for players, you know, to not opt out of some of these games. I mean, you know, we saw a number of players opt out of games, Ohio State and the Rose Bowl. Still a great game, but they were missing a lot of key players, and we saw that in other places. But, you know, maybe you need some incentives for players. Uh, you can expand. That will certainly make uh, players more likely to p play. But some part of the revenue, some percentage, some share, probably has to wind up in the pockets of players, in my view, uh, David. If you're really going to expand and you want these New Year's Day games and, and other bowls to be worthwhile, we want everybody to play. But let's make it worth their while. Yeah, and there's no there's no game that's beyond reproach. By the way, the Rose Bowl, you, you've seen it. You've seen it with the Sugar. You see, they're opting out of every single bowl game if it's not the championship. So if we make this a 12 team playoff and we expand it and we encompass some of those bowls, now listen, we're gonna have to work on the travel. The travel will be a real situation. People now are picking and choosing going to the first round or the second round. You know, with uh, with Georgia fans and Alabama fans, they were kind of hedging their bets. 
okay, are we going to go to the national championship? Well, I might save my money. Uh, they got to figure that out. But if we want to make the game, the game more exciting and keep more players in it for a longer period of time, we've got to expand the playoffs. So we got to get all the egos out of it, the power trip out of it. We got to get together and all work to expand the playoffs. David, this has been coming yeah, for five years. Why, why nothing has been done in that time is beyond me. It's not like we didn't see it. It's not like the powers that be didn't see it and that we should have been talking about expansion and we should have been talking about ways to include players and to provide more incentives since the point that Christian McCaffrey opted out of that Sun Bowl five <clears> years ago. So let's bring in Desmond Howard to add to this conversation. Desmond, I know you've talked a lot about playoff expansion in the past. Now that we've seen these exciting Bulls games over the weekend, do you think that it's proof positive we need more playoff games? Well, I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, if you want more players to, to participate, it seems like the cast out of the bag now. Um, players only want to really participate. And I'm not saying all players. Let me, let me make sure I categorize this correctly. Um, Players who have been projected to be first-round draft picks, those players are starting to opt out of bowl games if they think, you know, if those games aren't part of the CFP. Um, I think the way to keep those, those players engaged is to expand. If those bowl games were playoff games, um, then I believe that they would probably more be more likely to play in those games. But... The flip side is, you know, people are talking about players getting hurt in bowl games. And you can't have it both ways because the only surefire way for players not to get hurt is to not play more football. And if you're going to put more football games on their calendar as far as the playoff is concerned, then you're still increasing the likelihood of injuries. And most more importantly, guys, I keep hearing everybody talk about expansion. And the one question that I always want to ask all of these guys who are part of this committee is where does the extra money go? Because these games are going to generate a lot of money. I've never heard anyone discuss where the extra money is going. People will sit there and have discussions and arguments and debates about should it be 12, should it be 8, blah, 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 blah. How are people going to travel? But where's all this extra revenue is being generated, where is that going to go? Probably not into the pockets of those who are making this happen. Which are the players? So let's bring in uh, the bear, Chris Felica, to get his thoughts on this. Felica, uh, from a Vegas standpoint, my, I guess my question is, even if we expand, does it really change the inevitable outcome that we've been getting? Well, I, I think that's the, that's the big issue. Like, I am not pro-expansion because I think you're going to wind up with the same result. Anyway, maybe you will get more teams and more fan bases involved and excited because their team is going to play a playoff game. But you're still looking at a select group of teams that are going to win. And my issue, too, is you're going to need to move everything up. Like, it's fine if you want to include those other bowls in the New Year's Six into the playoff, but the problem is is just time. You'd be pushing the, the championship game back later and later and later closer to the Super Bowl. You need What, what you would need to do is have a, an on-campus kind of first-round game maybe the week after the Heisman or something like that to kind of get a round in before those New Year's games. And I actually think uh, we were talking about this, David. I can't remember if you were in, in Des, if, we were, if you were involved in it as well. I almost think... People who want to see competitive semifinals, I think a way you could see a more competitive semifinal
semifinal would be to move these games up. If you give the best two teams in the country three, three and a half, four weeks to get healthy, break down their opponent in the playoff so they'll be healthier, they've already got a talent advantage, now they have a time advantage to prepare, of course you're going to get a result uh, like we saw in the two semifinals on Saturday. If you're the better team and you're more prepared and you have more time, that's what's going to happen. So maybe, maybe moving these games up a little bit could help us get uh, closer semifinals as well. This speaks to one of the most complicated things about this entire conversation. I got four great minds with me that all have different mindsets on what should be done and how it should be done, which shows you how difficult it is to get some answers. We appreciate that, Bear. Thanks for the insight on it. In the meantime, let's talk a little bit about the game we're going to get a week from tonight. Stetson Bennett, we've seen the good. We've seen the bad. We've seen the terrible. What does this semifinal performance mean for the national championship next week? We'll figure out what version of Stetson to expect next Monday. tape that led to one of the biggest scandals in sports and changed the NBA forever. A podcast that unearthed it all. This is just like what 2014 was mm-hmm. like. Like there's yeah. a lot of wild stuff happening. And now a Hulu docudrama. TMZ was calling again and again and saying, we have a tape. Do you want to comment? 30 for 30 podcasts presents The Sterling Affairs. Let's talk clip. We reshot the scene and I could barely watch it because it was so uncomfortable. It was tough. A companion podcast to the FX drama inspired by the award-winning reporting of Ramona Shelburne, one of ESPN's top NBA reporters, an L.A. native, and someone who has been following the story from the moment it broke. Join Ramona as she sits down with the cast and crew of the show in spoiler-filled conversations and behind-the-scenes reaction to each episode. Man, this is crazy, but these people live these lives every day. Donald Sterling, this was his lifestyle for a long time. Listen to The Sterling Affairs. Let's talk clipped wherever you get your podcasts. This time, what I control is what I do. Not how I feel, but what I choose to do. And they throw deep to an open receiver. Touchdown, Alabama. We're just warriors, man. We fight to the end with everything we do, man. That's why we're going to win in that and repeat. We have one more opportunity to see what we can do, and I know we'll play a really good team, whoever it is. This team will be defined by what? What we do now. Georgia, the whole night through, manhandling Michigan, dominating them from start to finish, and booking that revenge tour matchup with Alabama and Indy. Georgia and Alabama will once again face off in the national championship. Bama emerged victorious in the 2018 title game to a tongue of a low connected with Devontae Smith in overtime for the walk-off win. Let's remember, it was just a month ago tomorrow these teams faced off. Georgia took the early lead, but this long touchdown from Bryce Young to Jamison Williams got the ball rolling for Bama. This was just the beginning of the outpouring of scoring for Alabama. Later in the second, Bryce Young going to have a little bit of fun here. This time finding Mechie, one of his favorite targets, gets the touchdown pass. Alabama takes the lead. After this, they never really had to look back. Georgia did try to answer. Let's give him a little credit here. Stetson Bennett got the ball out quickly. Lad McConkey did the heavy lifting from there. He ties the game at 17, making us think maybe 
maybe we're going to get something back and forth. Now, one of the key plays on this wasn't a scoring play. It's Bryce Young trying to make a play just before the half. Bam is driving. You can see there's about a minute to go. He's running with the ball. But unfortunately, in the process of the route, it was the injury to Mechie that became the story at that point. All eyes on the wide receiver that did not return. Start of the second half, Jamison Williams says, Swiggity Swooty! Going for the booty. Gets the touchdown. Bama increases their lead at this point, 31-17. Then in the fourth quarter, Georgia trying to make something happen. Bennett trying to make a play. Forgets that he needs his team to score the touchdowns. Instead, pick six. Bama gets the breathing room, and they roll all over them, 41-24 in the 2021 SEC Championship game. That leads us to a discussion about Stetson Bennett, who was very good in the semifinal game, but not good in the SEC Championship. So, I'll ask you, Pollock, how does he carry the momentum from the playoff game into the national championship? Well, the thing I liked about Georgia's offense was it was a lot more aggressive, uh, more shots down the field. You could see came out, run, RPO, then play or then pa deep pass with a, kind of a double move with Bowers. So I think if you stay aggressive, you saw his scrambling ability really come into a play where he was running around creating plays. So, um, listen, I, I get a little bit tired of this topic because I think the only reason we have it is because Stetson Bennett was a walk-on. If he was a five-star kid, Fitz wouldn't be asking me this question because – he had a 20 to 3 <laughs> touchdown ratio going into that Alabama game, and he just lights up Michigan in the in the Orange Bowl. But you know what? Let's keep talking about this guy like he's like he's some dud that doesn't know how to play football. You know, David, you're right. He, he he's not a dud, but the problem is he's got JT Daniels sitting behind him, who was a five star. You know, and folks keep wondering about that. But look, I, I think this is a helmet game. You know, for Stetson Bennett, he, he's got to get Alabama out of his head. He's not played well against Alabama his two previous times. He's 0-2 against them. He's only completing 53% of his passes against them. And he's normally around 62, 63%. He's thrown five touchdowns and five picks against Alabama. Against everyone else, he's 27-6. and So there's something about Alabama where he hasn't had success. He cannot let that affect him as he prepares for this game. If he, if he thinks about that and that's brought up to him over and over, that could be a problem. But he's got he's to gotta work his way through it. I mean, Pollock, I bring it up because it came in on the production meeting that you didn't come to. So there we go. Uh, you're going to love this topic because I'm just saying, Dez, Dez I got to ask you, we've seen a quarterback pulled in a national championship game. It happened for Alabama. If Stetson Bennett starts poorly, is there a chance that we see him pulled by Georgia? Well, I would say that going to this game, Stetson Bennett is the one whose everyone's eyes are going to be on because of his previous record going up against Alabama. And with so much on the line right now, especially with, with Kirby Smart's legacy as a coach, you know, can you imagine how much pressure's on him going to this game? Um, I think that he can ill afford to leave Stetson Bennett in the game if he's not performing up to par. It's not about him being a former walk-on. It's just about the way he plays against Alabama. No one cares about what he's done up to that point. The 12 games before the SEC championship game, they were great. But all the Georgia fans, they wanted to see how he performed against Alabama, and they came up short. He didn't perform, um, you know, very well. Now this is going to be his third opportunity on the biggest stage this thus far this season, the national championship game. And I do not think that Kirby Smart can afford to leave him in there if he appears to be struggling. The question is, 
How much confidence does Kirby Smart and Todd Munkin and the offensive staff, do they have in JT Daniels? That's the biggest question. So that raises an interesting question about pressure, Des. I mean, I'll ask you, Pollock, is there pressure on Kirby Smart also in this? Because we're talking about the quarterback, but it's also the coach that keeps losing to Alabama. Yeah. You think? (laughs) I mean, this this is a house of horrors, bro. Of course there's pressure on him. I mean, he's had great teams in the past, but what's one thing that's been consistently in the way? Better teams. You know, LSU in 2019, Bama every year, for God's sakes, because – that they've been the king of college football. So 100%, this is, you know, he's one of the former, you know, understudies that haven't been able to break through at all, um, had opportunities. But here's what I'll say about this, Fitz. I think this is the first time, and listen, he's 0-1 too with this team. I think this is the first time where the talent is actually kind of close. I think Alabama's clearly had more talent than Georgia over the last several years. I, If you went position by position for my analysis, I would say I think Georgia would win – a majority of the of, of those. Now, listen, they're still Alabama's still better at quarterback. They're still better, the best player with Will Anderson. Um, but Georgia's got a really good, complete team. So, heck yeah, Des Kirby's got pressure on him. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that Vegas has said twice that Georgia has the better team. I mean, they've been picked as the favorite um, in the SEC championship game, and now they're picked fa- as the favorite in the national championship game. And you know, I think it's because it's defensive driven. Now, anytime. Alabama is on the field, they will have the best player on the field. If they're on defense, Will Anderson is going to be the best player on the field. If they're on offense, the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, Bryce Young, is the best player on the field. But outside of that, Rod, I would have to say I think that Georgia has the better team, and that's why they're the favorite. And this is this has been, I think, considered Kirby Smart's best opportunity to beat Alabama because of his talent. If he don't, if he does, if it doesn't happen because of the talent, it's not the talent. It has to be. Um, they they've been out coached, Rod. Yeah. See, here we go with all the rat poison that Nick Saban likes. That got his team all fired up for the SEC championship <laughs> game. Look, are we forgetting that this was supposed to be George's year? that in the SEC championship game, they were favored. And we've all been talking about how Alabama is not the same team as the previous Alabama champions. You know, they struggled in four games this year. Yeah, so there's pressure on Kirby. If he doesn't get it done this year, people in Georgia are going to wonder not just when, if he can ever get by Nick Saban and Alabama. Well, Des mentioned the betting lines on it, and he's right. Despite the loss in the SEC championship, Georgia is a three-point favorite in the national championship game, according to Caesars Sportsbook. Alabama, 5-1 and one outright as an underdog since 2008. Three of those wins coming against Georgia. So let's get back to our expert on all of this, uh, the Bear, Chris Felica. Felica, thanks for hanging out, man. How does, it, how does what we see in the SEC championship game impact this opening line? Well, I think what we saw is a, a, a movement, but not too much of a, of a reaction. Uh, we, we saw Georgia close at around six, and that number was bet up uh, in Atlanta. And then some of the look-ahead lines, I saw like Georgia minus one, Georgia minus two. And the fact that it's three uh, tells me that the Vegas power ratings really do have 
Georgia ranked rated ahead of Alabama, but you don't want to go too high above three because then you're going to get Alabama money, and you don't want to go under three because then you're going to get all Georgia money. So I, I think this is kind of a compromise number where, yes, they're admitting we, we didn't want to close that high in, 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 in Atlanta, but at the same time we need to be careful and not open this thing too low. So we always talk about how the line changes as pros get involved. Over the next few days, what sort of movement do you expect? I don't think we're going to see too much movement off of three. I, I think uh, what we see a lot of times, whether it's a college football playoff championship game or a Super Bowl or something like that, Betters, in this instance, like to take the underdog on the money line to win, and therefore it creates a little bit of value on the favorite, uh, just the way the, the, the math works with all of it. So I don't think it's going to really move off of three right now. I think uh, they're, they're pretty happy with it on three. That way um, they're, they're not giving away the field goal either way to Bama or Georgia. But I do think you'll probably see uh, the money line, whereas maybe a plus three underdog might be around plus 130 or plus 135 <laughs> on the money line. You might see Alabama a little bit shorter on the, on the money line as opposed to what a plus three underdog normally would be. Felica, you're the best, my friend. Can't wait to see you in Indianapolis. Uh, appreciate your time. Absolutely. So, look forward to it, bud. As we keep breaking all this down, Georgia's defense was spectacular throughout much of the year with one glaring exception, the SEC championship game. So the question is, what can change in the next few days from what we saw before? We'll break it down for you next. It's our night to be elite. Are we elite? It's time to find out. Being elite is a mindset. It's a way of life. We have a standard. Each game, we want to play to our standard. We want to make sure that we hit our marks on everything. Every day they go on the practice field. Every day they go into the meeting room. They don't want to be measured against what are we in the country. What are we in the history? Do not fall victim to the disease. We're too good. We can't be beat. We're not practicing to beat somebody. We're practicing to beat everybody. They practice every day like they're not starting. They practice every day like they're trying to devour their prey. We love each other. I trust him. I trust he's going to do his job. He's going to do his job. You know we're going to be there for each other. All right, here's a hot take for you. This Georgia defense is good. One of the best we've seen in recent memories. They're allowing 9.6 points per game on pace to be the best since 2011 Alabama. The Dogs have held opposing Sydney callers to a QBR of just 17. That's best in the country. This includes an FBS leading six games where they've allowed a QBR under 10. Georgia did allow 41 points the last time they faced Alabama, which is more points than they had allowed in any month before the SEC championship game. So, Rob Gilmore, I'll ask you, what does Dan Lanning and this Georgia defense have to change for this matchup? Well, Fitz, you know, in my film study of, of that game, two things stood out about the Georgia defense. One, they did not affect or make uncomfortable Bryce Young. They didn't hit him. They didn't hurry him. They didn't rush him. They didn't do anything to make him feel like he had reason to worry in the pocket. That was a problem. When, when Georgia rushed four, Alabama picked it up. When they brought five, Brian Robinson stepped up and picked up the blitz. Look at that pocket. Bryce Young had no reason to feel any pressure at all. The other thing was, you know, bunch formation. 
You know, have a guy in the slot, a blown coverage on the back end for Georgia. The inside safety doesn't run with number two, the number two receiver there. And having those mistakes is a problem. I think what you see with that, that the end of that play, the second problem was Alabama did a great job of getting their best receivers matched up against safeties. That is a mismatch. When you get them against the safeties, that is a problem. You get Slade Bolden out here with a nice run out. It's a problem. Those two things, you've got to find a way to put some pressure on, uh, on um, the quarterback, Bryce Young. Even if you don't sack him, you have to make him feel your presence. And the second thing is they got to maneuver and change things, David, so that you don't have your safeties matched up against Williams or any of the other good receivers uh, with Alabama puts in the slot. That's a problem. All right, so Rod gave you one. He gave you two. I think is great. Three, I'll give you, Rod. Get him on the ground. Even when they did get pressure, yeah. Bryce Young broke tackles, made plays. He's not a big guy. He doesn't look to scramble a lot to run, but he always steps up, and he did a great job of stepping up. The one play, remember, Dodgers, Devontae Wyatt, Jordan Davis, Trayvon Walker. Those are three first or second round picks in the draft, big, strong dudes, and then flips it backwards. And then goes in blocks. Like, he just did an unbelievable job when they did bring, uh, bring pressure and did get to him of not getting him on the ground. Another thing, too, Georgia got more aggressive in the second half with John Mechie off the field. I think it made a difference. I don't think yep. Mechie um, – I just think his experience, his familiarity with the quarterback, they got more aggressive. They played more man. They pressured Bryce Young. Bryce Young looked a little bit more human in the second half because the first half – was an absolute clinic on how to torch you. So you mentioned Mechie not being there. So I'll stick there, Pollock. How does that change the offensive game plan for Alabama? Well, it definitely changes it. You know, when you saw Cincinnati game, I thought Jamison Williams took on the role of Mechie a little bit. As It wasn't just all the deep stuff. He ran some of the intermediate passes and um, got some of those tough first downs on third and short. Um, so it does change. Listen, they're talented, and, and here's what I'll say. Coming into the national championship game in 2017, Georgia versus Alabama, a guy named Devontae Smith had seven catches coming into that ball game on the season as a freshman. And then all of a sudden in the natty, he makes the biggest play of, the, of his career that up to that point and absolutely dominates. So they've got plenty of guys that will fill in. Um, but I just think the trust factor with Mechie, um, you know, Billingsley will have to be a guy to step up and, be, and make more plays. Uh, but, and Jamison Williams will still be used as the main pawn. But um, I still think Bryce Young will find his guys, Rod, and make plays. Yeah, look, the other thing, David, was that, you know, Alabama did a great job of spreading out the Georgia defense. You know, they went empty sometimes. They were typically in four wide receivers. They pulled those linebackers away from the line of scrimmage, and that allowed Bryce Young to see things a little clearer, and it also allowed them to get the ball out quickly. So if I'm, if I'm uh, Georgia, I'm thinking about ways to adjust and deal with that and ways to bring pressure, even if you don't get – Bryce Young on the ground. You have to affect him. You have to hit him. You got to make him feel you. So I think that's going to be the number one thing out there. But you're right about Mechie because in that game, he was the primary target in the first half until he got hurt. And they didn't need him against Cincinnati. I have a feeling that they'll probably need him against Georgia. He won't the be there, though. The most intriguing thing about this will be the adjustments the teams make in the process. Let's take a look now at the Progressive Bowl Challenge Cup.
The Mountain West sits atop the standings 5-1 with the American and Sun Belt just behind them, 3-1. The Big 12 has one game remaining while the SEC has three more. So we'll see how it shakes out. This is the final game before the national championship game next Monday night. We've got that coming up. It's the Texas Bowl, the Tax Act Texas Bowl. Interim head coach Brad Davis leads LSU against Kansas State. Our coverage starts Tuesday night, 9 Eastern on ESPN and the ESPN app. All right, some dates are marked in the calendar for an eventual 30 for 30. January 3rd is one of those for Nick Saban in the college football world. We'll tell you why when we come back. Saban, Nick Saban's time at Alabama's unmatched six national titles for the Tide. It's tied with Bear Bryant for the most at a single school. A big day for him. Four Heisman Trophy winners, three different positions, including Bryce Young this season. Today, 15 years ago, he was introduced as Alabama's head coach on this day in 2007. Saban has had more first-round draft picks than he's had losses. This is what Coach had to say now about the introduction then. I'm 70 years old. So um, I don't think I have any form of dementia or anything like that. But um, I can't really remember what happened 15 years ago. Dez, thoughts on coach? I tell you what, um, 15 years ago, if you look real close, just like real close, real fast, right? He almost looked like Tom Cruise, you know? So if there was going to be a movie made of his life, <laughs> that first time he got to Tuscaloosa, I think it would be appropriate for Tom Cruise to play the Nick Saban character when he first signed his contract with, with uh, the tie. Now, I don't know who would play him today, but I would say Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Des, all I know is that we, whether it's Tom Cruise or somebody else, we did not see this coming. I mean, these 15 years have no, been utterly amazing. And uh, who knows, there may be another five years of this, but what he's built at Alabama, we've not seen anything like this before. Yeah, well, we should all be lucky enough to have Tom Cruise play us in a movie. All right, let's get you some big news in college football that's breaking now. <laughs> Caleb Williams, quarterback last with Oklahoma, has entered the transfer portal. You see it on the screen, 1,912 passing yards, 21 touchdowns this season. Rod, you're nodding your head. What are your thoughts on Caleb? Well, I, I think Caleb made a really good point. He said, look, the only way I can talk to other schools is to put my name in the portal. He said things have changed. You know, his the coach, Lincoln Riley, that was there with him, recruited him, is gone. And now he wants to reevaluate things. But you can only do that if you put your name in the portal. The problem is the moment you put your name in the portal, your school can withdraw your scholarship. You know, they need to change this rule so that players at least have a week or two weeks once they put their name in the portal to explore and then come back if they want. Caleb Williams, Dad, says he might come back to Oklahoma. But that's only a, uh, only going to happen if Oklahoma says we're not pulling your scholarship. That's an excellent point, Rod. I didn't even think about that. I think that, but I do think that Caleb is at a point now he wants to test the waters. And on game day, um, Saturday, we actually had USC's new head coach, Lincoln Riley, on the show. It would have been great had this happened 
before January <laughs> 1 to, to ask Lincoln if he got his eyes on any quarterbacks that are in the transfer portal that might be able to come out there and help him out west. So it would be interesting to see moving forward if um, Lincoln Riley or which coach tries to snatch up Caleb Williams. You know, he jumped up on the scene in that game against Texas, and he was actually a Heisman candidate at the time, but then eventually kind of faded out a little bit and um, didn't perform the way he did against Texas. But we both know, we all know, the, the upside for Caleb Williams is huge. Incredible dual-threat yep. quarterback, plays with a tremendous amount of confidence and a bunch of energy that affects the whole team. Yeah, well, let's also realize how different I the conversation around Oklahoma is. Yeah, for sure. Oklahoma's quarterback cha conversation oh, yeah. changed completely <laughs> from a year ago to right now. They've got to figure that out quickly to figure out who's going to be their quarterback. And look at Michigan State on how quickly you can rebuild through the transfer portal. He's Desmond Howard, Ron Gilmore. I'm Jason Fitz. Thanks for hanging out with us on College Football Live. Enjoy the week.